Well, let's turn our thoughts now to our current series of messages from the book of Revelation as we are working through a series of sermons and Bible studies in our small groups entitled Seven Letters to Seven Churches. And as we enter into our time of study of God's word, please join with me in prayer. Lord, we now pray that you would give us your grace as we look at your word. And I pray, Lord, that your word would do its work in our hearts and lives. It's alive and living. And I pray as I do every week, and and I don't want this to be repetitious, but I really pray that it would find fertile soil in our hearts, take root and grow and produce fruit. To that end, I pray that you would use your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is success? You ever thought about that? Some people say that success is when your signature becomes an autograph. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Others say it's something that happens when you're too busy to look for it. I like that one. A successful student, a deactivated Facebook account. One that I really like is success is moving from one failure to the next with great enthusiasm, which means that the road to success is always under construction. Here's one that I thought was especially powerful. There are two rules to becoming successful. One, don't tell all you know. Ask Eric, he'll explain it to you later. (laughs) Well, what's the second rule? Well, you don't do that. The first rule is don't tell all you know. All right, that one might have gone a little bit. (laughs) So what's a successful church? See, I think that's the question that we're all interested in, isn't it? What's a successful church? I read today the testimony of a pastor who was, who was reminding uh, those who were reading his article of his journey when he just got out of seminary. And he was wondering what a successful church is and how should he do his ministry to have a successful church. And so years and years and years after he became engrossed in ministry, he reflected on his beginning. And this is what he said. Coming out of seminary, I determined that to be successful is to be big, cool. Tattoos and skinny jeans were a good start. And it seemed to help if you were angry about something. From the outside, it appeared that the secret sauce for success went something like this. More people, more money, happy people. Now I know that nobody would have said this out loud, but it seemed to be the only measurement that made sense to a young leader looking to find his way and do his best for God. After all, I was walking away from a promising career in corporate banking. But what really is a successful church? I think 
the best definition was given by one of our one of my favorite church consultants and he says this a successful church is a church that's faithful it's a church that's fruitful and it's a church that makes god famous and if we can do that we're a successful church now In his letter from Jesus to the church in Philadelphia, which is where we are today in Revelation chapter 3, we have the first ingredient of success clearly heard. Jesus specifically commends the church in Philadelphia for being faithful. But I think we will see the other two as well as I comment on these verses as we work through them. And hopefully will come away from this message with something about a successful church that we can contemplate and think about how to apply to our own church here in Three Lakes. So as we work through these verses in Revelation chapter 3, I would like to suggest two traits of a successful church. And the first one, of course, is the obvious faithful ministry. Faithful ministry in the light of open doors. In light of open doors. Now I'll share how I got to that in just a minute. Philadelphia as a church is an open door to the east. Historians tell us that it was founded by the Greeks in the second century B.C. And because of its strategic location, it was called the open door city Because the idea was that the city would import culture from the west, Greece, into the east, Asia Minor. And would come through the trade routes that went through Philadelphia. The goal was once that door was open, it would continue to influence the region for generations to come. It was the only city, not a great city, but it had a great opportunity. Historians suggest that Philadelphia succeeded because by the time of the first century, Greek culture was the culture of the Roman Empire. In fact, Greece, Greek was the spoken language of the common people. Historians suggest that Philadelphia then became the open door ambassador to Greek culture. Now, in Philadelphia, as we see in this letter, there was a small Christian congregation. And in his letter to this church, Jesus takes the idea of an open door and applies it to this small church. And that's found in verse 8. So if you have your Bibles open with me to Revelation chapter 3, look at verse 8. Jesus says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus observes that this is a church of little natural strength. This refers to their natural authority, their natural worldly influence, and it wasn't much. Yet Jesus commends them for their faithfulness. He says, you've kept my word and you've not denied my name, but faithfulness, as good as it is, is not enough. Jesus, I suggest to you, challenges these people to be fruitful 
and to make God famous by walking through the open door opportunities that are there for this congregation. The ministry is wide open for them. He's calling this church to influence their community, to shine the light of the gospel to a culture that is obviously out of their mind. (laughs) Clearly, Jesus calls us to produce fruit, and fruit that lasts. And fruitfulness is one way that we make God famous in a culture that aggressively works to make everyone famous except God. So with this phrase, open door, this church with little influence is reminded that Jesus gives his followers from every church the privilege of spreading his word, walking through open doors. And so, if he's chosen to open a door for us, his challenge for us is walk through it. Look for the opportunities. And I've seen us look at open doors and I've watched us walk through them. And Jesus says, continue to walk through every open door that is before you. But I'd like to suggest a personal commentary, and all of us know this. Walking through open doors of Christian ministry can be messy, can it? Church is messy. Sometimes a window of opportunity comes along with a generous supply of rocks. Rocks and windows don't get along very well. But yet Jesus tells us, walk through the open doors, even though Christian ministry is messy. See, I think the biggest mess we have to deal with in church ministry is our own personal feelings. Because we're fragile. We're all fragile. I'm fragile. You're fragile. And we all have a history a history that includes wounds and hurts. And it's real easy for us to spend our time protecting ourselves, protecting our wounds, protecting our fragile little lives. And, and ministry exposes those weaknesses, exposes that vulnerability, and, and sometimes it gets messy to walk through an open door. We have a difficult time trusting leaders. We sometimes question their motives. We resist change as if change is a four-letter word. Why? Because it creates a mess. Our little girl was really active when she was growing up. Everywhere she went, it was chaos. You know what her first word was? My wife and I reflect on this often. Her first word wasn't mommy, it wasn't daddy, it was mess. Because <laughs> we'd always say, oh, Brittany, what a mess. And she learned mess. But she was our daughter. And that's what it meant to raise an active little girl. She created messes. But we loved it. Because she was growing. Why would a church that had no rebuke from Jesus, which Philadelphia didn't have, had no command to repent, which Jesus did not tell them to do, but was commended for their faithfulness, why would this church take the risk of walking through an open door and creating a mess? 
I think the answer is found in verse 7. Look at verse 7. We move forward because of the gospel. These are the words of him who was holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus says that, um, that he holds the key of David. That's a reference to one of, the, one of the gatekeepers of the temple back in the Old Testament who held the keys of the temple. Now, the keys of David refers to the Davidic promise, which is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where, where, where God promises that there will be a descendant of David sitting on the throne of God forever. And what does that mean? That there will be one who will come in the line of David who has the keys to heaven and who will open up the door of heaven and those who place their faith and trust in him will enter the open door to heaven that no one can shut. Because Jesus has the key to heaven and when he opens the door to heaven for you and for me and we place our faith and trust in him, we enter into that door and no one can shut it. That's the gospel. That's why we walk through open doors. That's why we put up with messes, because Christian ministry is messy. But we do it for, for changed lives, for healed marriages, for freedom from bondage, for purpose and fulfillment and peace and joy. That's why. We walk through the open doors. And a successful church is faithful. Walking through open doors. Willing to put up with the messiness of ministry. Number two, I think a faithful, a successful church is faithful in hardship. And here I look at the phrase, I will keep you. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I will keep you as found in verse 10. What does that word, that phrase mean? Well, set the context for it in verse 9. There's persecution from the Jewish inhabitants of Philadelphia. Once again, Jesus is reminding the Christians that our Jewish friends do not recognize Jesus as Messiah. And it's understandable why. Because Jesus died a shameful, cursed death on a cross. How could Messiah be cursed? They didn't understand that it was a substitutionary atonement where Jesus took the curse for us. They didn't understand that. And so they thought by persecuting the Christians, they were serving Jehovah, which is why Jesus says they lie. 
They're not serving Jehovah. And so he calls them the synagogue of Satan, where instead of serving Satan, really they are his pawns. (laughs) Unintentionally, but they ended up being his pawns. It's talking about the persecution that has been part of all of these letters to the seven churches thus far. In the context of Jesus, this persecution, Jesus told them to be faithful in hardship with a promise. And that promise is found in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you. Now, let's think for a moment. Remember the messages to the other churches that address suffering or lack of suffering. And we know that their suffering or lack of suffering comes as a direct result of their being faithful in walking through open doors. The Church of Philadelphia was commended for their faithfulness, and Jesus calls them to build on this faithfulness because he knows that as soon as they do, there will be hardship. And so the context of this promise is very important. I will keep you, but... What does he mean, I will keep you? Well, here verse 10, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. Most Bible scholars uh, agree that this refers to the great tribulation during the end times. Notice that Jesus says, which comes on the whole world. So it's not just a time of tribulation for the people in Philadelphia. There's a time in the future where there's going to be a great tribulation come upon the whole world. Remember that people who read these seven letters also read the rest of the book of Revelation. (laughs) And so they saw the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and they saw all the terrible suffering that was going to come upon the people. And Jesus says, I will keep you. Now, he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. But I'd like to suggest a perspective that he's also going to keep them right now, but I'll I'll bring that up in just a minute. Because in verse 10, there's a theological discussion that I'm sure all of you are wondering about, and so I feel compelled to at least address it. In verse 10, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. I will keep you from the tribulation. So the discussion surrounds a little preposition from. One way to translate that word from is I will keep you from, to be kept from. It means that the faithful believers will not even experience the tribulation. They will be taken out of the world and be protected from the tribulation because they are taken out even from the hour of tribulation, even from the time of tribulation. And so taken this way, the phrase supports the idea that believers will be raptured or caught up prior to the tribulation. And so there will be a pre-tribulational catching up of believers and there's much to commend this perspective uh, present in theological thinking. That's if you understand the term being translated from. But you can also translate this word from within, which then would refer to being protected during the tribulation. And those who take it this way refer to John 17:15, where Jesus says, My prayer is not that you be taken out of the world, but that you be protected 
from the evil one. The exact same construction. In Revelation, it's from the tribulation. And here, it's from the evil one. So taken this way, believers will experience the tribulation. But like the Israelites were protected in the midst of the plagues in Egypt, so the Christians will be protected during the time of tribulation. And there's much to commend this view as well. So which one is it? Well, here it's important for us to, I suggest, think of a perspective this. My opinion is that this text, making a distinction between kept from or from within is the wrong issue. I would suggest that both interpretations agree that the promise given to Philadelphia refers to a time in the future. Sometime in the future, there's going to be a tribulation and I will keep you. Whether it's from it all together or in its midst, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, is that Jesus is coming to these people and he's saying, walk through your open doors, be faithful to me, and when there's hardship, I'll be with you there. As I will protect you from the great tribulation, well, certainly I can protect you from whatever you might face now. Now, many of you are thinking, well, it doesn't seem like God is protecting us (laughs) from tribulation now. I mean, these believers were, were suffering great persecution. And sometimes we think about ourselves now, well, we're going through pretty hard times right now. It doesn't seem like God's protecting me right now. You know, the bad guys seem to be getting away with their badness. Don't you think that sometimes? The drunk drivers, the financial manipulators, the gang leaders, the bullies, the organized crime, they seem to be prospering. Where's protection? Well, I'd like to remind you of what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. He says this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Folks, this is not the world as God originally created and declared it very good. This is a world where hardship and difficulty happens. Because it's a sinful world. It's a fallen world. And we've studied that through, the, through these letters and other times as we've talked about prayer for the persecuted Christians, we know that sometimes in this world, God calls us to suffer. And in that process of suffering for him, he becomes so much closer to us, so much more precious to us, so much more real to us in the face of hardship. It seems as though God's purpose in life is to build us up and train us and make us strong and to grow us through trials. It's all through the New Testament. And in the midst of that hardship and difficulty, God has promised that he will protect us. He will accomplish his purpose in our lives through the suffering. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. 
And be assured by God's sovereign grace and power in your life, he will complete what he began in you, Philippians 1, 6 says, until the day of Christ Jesus. And he will use whatever comes upon us for his purpose and for his glory. You know why? Because he will make himself famous. By the way, his people remain faithful in hardship. And then Jesus gives us some encouragement. He says, well, I'm going to vindicate you. And in my opinion, this is one of the strongest reasons to believe that there will be a literal kingdom on this earth, a thousand-year kingdom on this earth. Because I think the prophets in the Old Testament cry out for it, and I think Jesus here promises it. There will be vindication for his people who God calls to go through hardship. Look at verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, I think this applies to all the people who persecute Christians. The promise is that God's people will eventually be vindicated. Those who persecute us will bow before us Not in worship of us, but in worship of the Lord. Here's what's going to happen. The believers who persecute, the the people who will persecute believers will come to them and they'll say, you know what, you guys were right to worship God. I was wrong to persecute you. You see, the, the bullies will come to us and say, it wasn't right for me to do that to you. I was wrong to do that to you. The atheists will come to us and they'll say, you know, you're not as dumb as I thought you were. <laughs> this God, he's real. The philosophers are going to come to us and say, you know, you weren't foolish after all. Because... Being a Christian is totally logical and it makes total sense. See, when the bullies and the oppressors and the smug and arrogant elitists come to us and say, I'm sorry, you were right, that's vindication. And that will happen to God's people. It's right and just for God to vindicate his own. Doesn't that give us courage to be faithful in hardship? Yes. God takes care of his own. I've run out of time. I won't be able to unpack this. But thirdly, there will be rewards. There will be rewards. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Now, that's not good news for the other churches. (laughs) The other churches, Jesus says, I'm coming. Uh, That's not good news. This one it is. Because in this church, verses 12 and Uh, Verse 12 says, I'm going to come and I'm going to give you rewards. And that's something that's so encouraging for us and helps us to be faithful in the midst of difficulty. Let me sum up a principle for us to take home. This is what I would suggest is a mantra for a successful church. The successful Christian church exhibits a life of faithfulness. Even when ministry is messy, even when life is hard. That's a successful church. That's a successful church.
You see, Jesus calls us to be salt of the earth. And salt adds flavor. Salt slows decay. And salt creates thirst. And we are to create thirst for God. Now, to be salt, you don't need to be spectacular. To be salt, you don't need to be sensational. Jesus said, you're a little church in Philadelphia. You don't have much influence. We're just a little church in northern Wisconsin. (laughs) But God says to us, be salty. That's all you need. Be salty. And when you're salty, you'll have opportunities for ministry. Walk through them. When you're salty, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be hardship. Endure. Rely upon my promises. Nothing will happen to you except that which I will use to produce fruit in your lives and make me famous. That's a successful church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the opportunities before us. Lord, we, we have, I see a lot of faithfulness of things that we've done and are doing. But Lord, you want to open up new doors for us to walk through. You want to expand our influence. You want to, you want to produce more fruit. And you want to make yourself more famous with our little church in northern Wisconsin. I pray that you would help us to be faithful. Faithful in walking through open doors and faithful when that open door ministry results in hardship, knowing that you are walking with us and nothing will happen to us except that which produces fruit in our lives and makes you famous. That's what we want, God. We submit to that, and we ask you to give us your grace as that is accomplished in our lives in ministry. We place our hands in yours and submit to your sovereign will. In Jesus' name, amen.